Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Depending on whether you favor the, the Guinness Book of World Records or the Rolling Stones uh, estimate, John Lennon's Imagine is either the second or third greatest song of all time. Since 2005, this, the lyrics of his song have, have been kind of the liturgy of choice for the New, Year, New Year's Eve ball drop in Times Square. The, the watching world united in praise of a utopian future without religion. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. You know the lyrics. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. In 2012, CeeLo Green performed the song in Times Square, and he gave the 1971 lyric a bit of a postmodern facelift. He replaced, and no religions, too, with the more palatable, and all religions, true. What a vision. It seems that living life in peace kind of, we need to go one of two ways. Either no religion is true, Atheism is the key to peace, enough religious violence and war, or all religion is true and, and pluralism is the key to peace. Which is it? Well, I want to say that actually John Lennon and CeeLo Green have a point. It's obvious from history that religion has been a source of, of significant strife and violence. Bertrand Russell, he was, he was sandwiched between World War I and World War II, and he dreamed of, of Lennon's religious-less utopia. He put it this way, he said, it is possible now, and this is after World War I, it is possible that mankind is on the threshold of a golden age. But if so, it will first be necessary to slay the dragon that guards the door. And that dragon is religion. What I want to say is basically this, that they have a point. But I'm going to offer an important caveat. So against this backdrop, I want to turn our attention to Jesus' words in Luke 13, beginning in verse 22. I invite you to follow along on your phones or if you brought a Bible or in the Pew Bible. Um, we're going to basically run through the passage, sort of figure out what's going on, and then we're going to turn our attention to two questions, especially one question. How can we say that there is only one true faith? Isn't that the source of religious violence and pride? How can we say there's only one true faith? So first, let's go through the passage and see what we can find. Beginning in verse 22, chapter 13, Luke 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way, where? To Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Why? To die. So please put a pin in that, and we'll return to it later. Verse 23, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? A bit of history here really helps us with this question. Jesus comes on the scene in an era of Jewish history known as Second Temple Judaism. This is between the rebuilding of the temple in around 500 BC and then the destruction of the temple after Jesus' 30 or 40 years after his death in 70 AD. So it's this 560-year period of Jewish history known as Second Temple Judaism. And one of the hallmarks of this period in Jewish history is group definition. Group definition, bringing boundaries to a group. Why? 
Because the Jews are living under foreign rule in the promised land. They're wrestling with what seemed like God's failure to keep his promises to his people, to deliver them and rescue them and return them to their own land and king. So they've come back from exile, but they're still under foreign oppression. And so the instinct is to double down on who we are as the people of God. And so the Pharisees, for example, emerge. And the Pharisees' approach is to stress obedience to the law. And they build a fence of oral tradition around the written law, and they hold everyone to it. Radical purity. That is the way to be saved. Another group, the, the Essenes emerge. We know about the Essenes from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they withdrew into the wilderness, and they were kind of a monastical community, and they pursued radical righteousness, believing that they and they alone would be the community that God would save. So if you wanted to be saved, you had to be part of their group, Right? This thinking is summed up in a second temple book known as Four Ezra. We read this. The Most High made this world for the sake of many, but the world to come for the sake of a few. And so there's this desire to get in that small group, that narrow few who are going to be saved. So against this backdrop, let's look at the question again. Someone asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? I think we should read this question in view of what I've just said. This, this nationalistic, ethnocentric context. We might fill in the gaps by saying something like this. This is a Jew, we know from the context, asking Jesus, Jesus, will God only save Jews? Faithful Jews who are not like those dirty Greco-Roman sinners? See, we see a hint here, beginning to see how religion divides and inspires violence. It begins with a sense of superiority in the heart over the religious, you know, cultural other you know, the dirty sinner, the outsider. Okay, well, how does Jesus respond? Jesus said to them in verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Notice Jesus does not rebuke their question, but he does reframe it. There's nothing inherently wrong with the question, but often it is asked to turn attention away from oneself. So Jesus takes this theoretical question, right? And he personalizes it. As interesting as the question of whether God will save people in lost and faraway places might be, there is a more fundamental question that Jesus draws their attention to. Do you have a relationship with God? He goes on to tell a parable of one who is knocking to be admitted to a house. That's the kingdom of God. And yet the master of the house, that's Jesus, has shut the door and refused them admittance. And they are left weeping outside, looking through the window, and they're seeing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's how we know it's a Jew who's asking, right? These are the great patriarchs. They see the great patriarchs of Judaism inside, as well as a great ingathering of Gentiles. We know this from the prophecy in Isaiah. Gentiles being gathered from the east and west and north and south. This great ingathering of people. The first will be last, and the last will be first. It's the Jew and Gentile tension. So Jesus is not saying, this is how it must be. Rather, he is giving a warning to those who rely on some sort of nationalistic or ethnocentric or, or a religious merit or association to gain entry into the kingdom. He's saying that's the old way, ethnicity, right? You had to be a Jew to get in, no longer. Instead, he is redrawing the boundaries of salvation around himself, the, new, the master of the house, in a personal relationship with him. So their argument, look at it. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. That, that doesn't claim any kind of relational bond, does it? It's, it's proximity. 
And here we begin to see the caveat emerge. Insofar as religion is wound up in an ethnocentric, nationalistic, or even moral sense of superiority, that dragon does need to be slain. It will divide. It will produce pride in the heart. I'm a part of the in crowd. I'm the part of the crowd that's got it right. You know, I go to church every week and I, I do my quiet times and I say my prayers and I'm a generally good person. The invitation of Christ is into relationship with him, not a religious set of ideals. So the heart of Christ is not to exclude, far from it. You know, soon after this teaching, Jesus tells another parable in the very next chapter, chapter 14. There's another master of the house, and he goes out and he sends his servants saying, go to the highways and hedges and invite people in that my house may be filled. That's the heart of God, to fill his house. He doesn't delight in refusing anyone entry. Far from it, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it's for this very reason that Jesus wants to be clear with the truth, with his warning. There is entry and there is refusal. There is eternal salvation and there is eternal death. There is heaven and there is hell. However, the question is not ultimately a religious one in the sense we're talking about it, but a relational one. Not am I Jewish or am I Muslim or am I American or am I Indian? It's not did I go to church enough? Did I do enough quiet times? Did my parents raise me in the church? Do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? Am I generally kind of a good person? No. The question is simple. Do I know Jesus? Have I let him know me? Will I receive his invitation to the narrow way on his terms? God doesn't save us through our activity, religious or otherwise, not through our heredity or by proxy. And that is the way of religion as John Lennon and Bertrand Russell, I think, conceived of it. The sense of nationalistic, ethnocentric, religious pride setting me apart from the rabble. In contrast, Jesus says, enter through the narrow door, which means responding inwardly to Jesus. The gate is so narrow, in fact, you must go through one at a time, as it were. No hiding in the crowd but heart to heart, you and Jesus. What are you going to do with him? Outward contact with Jesus counts for nothing. What he desires is an inward response. Okay, so that's kind of the gist of the teaching. But let's look a little bit at the application. I'd like to um, ask and try to answer two questions. What does an inward response look like? And how can we say there's only one true, true faith? I think that's the tension many of us feel. So first, the inward response. The key word here is the first word out of Jesus' mouth in response to the question. Will those who are few be saved? What does Jesus say in verse 24? Strive. Ugh, what a word. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The Greek behind strive is agonizomai. You hear agony. Agonize to enter through the narrow gate. Make every effort. Strain every nerve. Fight. Struggle. Okay. Sounds kind of like we got to work really hard to earn our salvation, doesn't it? Like Jesus is saying, the key to being saved is try harder. Our bishop often says, try harder is never good news. So what's going on here? What, what's, what's happening? Biblical theology is defined as bringing unity, through, unity and diversity. So Paul kind of emphasizes one thing and James another, and the gospel is really intense on disciples. How do we bring all this together to make sense of it all? We don't ever read one text in isolation. So we have to do some biblical theology here. How is this not saying try harder? We know salvation is a gift, right? Not, not out of our own efforts. We know that. So how do we think about this text in light of that? 
Jesus is taking issue because this question is being asked from a place of presumptive superiority based on religious performance and merit by association. Will only a few, us Jews, be saved? He's likely speaking to a Jewish man who has spent his life striving under the impossible burden of the law, one who certainly sees himself as one of the few given his religious superiority to the rabble. And my suggestion is that Jesus is taking this place where he's coming from and he's redirecting his efforts. The struggle is not about earning entry to the house through effort. It is actually about struggling to find the narrow door, which we've seen is relationship with Jesus. So work, sure, yes. Strive, yes. For what? To find the right door. To place your faith in Christ above all other would-be saviors. That is the work. So in John 6, verse 27, Jesus is talking to some Jews, and they say, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Right? That's the end. We want to work. What do we do to work? We got to get it done. Jesus' response, listen to it. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So what does it look like to inwardly respond to Jesus, to, to go through the narrow way? It means to trust Jesus as the narrow way in exclusion of all others. And that is a hard call. That's what we're going to look at now. How can we say that there's only one true faith, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life? That's, that's his claim. In Peter's sermon before the religious aristocracy of Jerusalem, Peter proclaims, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The exclusivity of Jesus as the way of salvation is as scandalizing to many of us, many of our friends, as it was to the ancient Jews. You know, CeeLo Green's replacing of Lenin's and no religions too with, and all religions true, just, it just jives with modern sensibilities, doesn't it? Because most of us have friends and neighbors and, and co-workers who are, who are Buddhist and Hindu and Muslim and, and atheist and New Age, and we love them, and they're nice people. It's less offensive to say that all religions are true than no religions are true. So that's kind of the modern instinct. But worst of all would be to say that one of them is true at the expense of all others. How could we say that? Rebecca McLaughlin summarizes the tension that I think we all feel. She says, it's one thing to say that Christianity is true for you. Your truth, right? But to claim that Jesus rightly demands the allegiance of every human being, regardless of one's cultural background, or current beliefs, that seems offensive and absurd. As one bumper sticker puts it, my God is too big for any one religion. The claim of exclusivity is often countered with an analogy. Perhaps you've heard it. I think I've shared it before, years ago. Imagine an elephant and then four people who are coming to feel around on this elephant who are blind. So there's four blind people, and they're coming, and they're, and they're feeling around, and the elephant represents God in the analogy. And one gropes the trunk, and they say, God is like a snake. The other, the elephant's leg, and says, God is like a tree. The other, the elephant's tail, and says, God is like a rope. And the other, its side, and says, God is like a wall. And in this scenario, they're all a little bit right. All religion's true. The problem, McLaughlin goes on to point out, is that this analogy only works if the narrator is not blind. They must see everything you know, smiling indulgently at the blind believers who are arguing only because they have a limited perspective. So she goes on to highlight seven problems with the analogy. I just want to point out four. First, it's disrespectful. <laughs> to say Islam and Hinduism are just two sides of the same truth coin is patronizing. 
It actually shows you do not respect either religion enough to take their claims seriously. Instead, to listen, to understand, and to weigh the merits of various religious claims dignifies the adherence of those religions as thinking agents who are worth listening to and responding to thoughtfully. It's just dismissive. So it's, it's just disrespectful. Second, it's historically naive. It's up there with attempts to kind of deny the historical reality of the Holocaust or slavery in America. These things happened in history. They're historical claims. Just as Julius Caesar was either assassinated on March 15th, 44 BC, or he was not, Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected from the dead, or he was not. Whether we think the evidence is strong or weak, and we can debate that, absolutely, Christian faith stands or falls on a historical claim, as do most religions. So the elephant analogy is a little bit historically naive. Third, it's ethically confused. You know, most modern Westerners would agree in principle that racism, for example, is wrong, that people should have freedom of sexual expression, and that men and women should be uh, equally valued. But if all religions are true, do you say to a conservative Muslim, for example, we uphold your right to be Muslim, absolutely, but, but you must embrace equal roles for women and men and same-sex marriage and the freedom of your teenagers to experiment sexually. It's ethically confused. No, no religions have a similar approach to ethics. And ultimately, we must choose and weigh the merits. So lastly, and most importantly, there's the problem of Jesus. Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. Muslims believe he was taken up into heaven. Jews and most agnostics believe Jesus died and remained dead. And these claims are mutually exclusive. They cannot be various parts of an elephant, so to speak. One of them is right, the other's wrong. And Jesus claims to be a path to God, sorry, the path to God, over and against all others. More than that, he claims to be God himself, the definitive revelation of the creator, almighty God of the universe. So then, what do we do? Are we not now set up to say we're in the same position as all these other religions who we've got the truth and now we look down our noses at you who don't? We're saved and you're damned. How do we avoid that problem? Remember, I said put a pin in verse 22. This challenging teaching begins by reminding us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. To do what? To die. For who? for us and for his enemies. To those who are killing him, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 22, verse 44, as we follow kind of the trail that this word we've looked at, striving, agonizomai, agony, anguish, we find it again in a very interesting place. Jesus is in the garden. In verse 44 of chapter 22, we read this, And Jesus, being in anguish, same word for striving, Jesus is striving. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And where are the disciples in this scene? They're asleep. When he rose from prayer and he went back to his disciples, he found them asleep and exhausted from sorrow. Jesus' invitation for us is to strive to find him, yes, the narrow door. But that must be kind of subsumed, subsumed under his own striving on our behalf. Because where are we in this image? We're asleep. We're asleep with the disciples. We can't strive hard enough. We can't, keep, we can't accomplish enough. We can't do... No. Our striving in the end 
must not be to trust our own merits to stay awake because our efforts, they will always end in failure. Does he turn then to the disciples and say, well, you didn't stay awake, you failed, you didn't strive hard enough, so I will therefore no longer be going to the cross for you. (laughs) No, that night he goes on to be betrayed and the next afternoon killed and then three days later raised. What does this mean for religion? It means the religion Jesus warned against was the kind that puffed up its chest with nationalistic, ethnocentric, moralistic pride and said, to hell with those dirty Gentiles. We few are saved. That is the tendency of many world religions. There's us and there are those sinful others. But Jesus' religion is the opposite. He says the narrow way, yes, is to know him, but who is he? He is the one who rebuked the religiously proud and died for his enemies. He is the one who agonized and bled to love the unworthy. He's the one who prepares a great feast, and he doesn't only invite the religiously elite, he goes out into the highways and byways and invites them in, the poor and the blind and the lame and the lost. This means that the narrow entry of Jesus is actually a broader invitation than any other religion. You do not need to be of a certain ethnicity, You do not need to be of a certain lineage. You do not need to be of a certain intellect or moral rectitude. You need only one thing, to know him. The narrow way is wide open to all who will trust Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. And so Lenin dreamed of a world without religion, as a world with nothing to die for. I am biased, but I think a far more beautiful dream is of a world where the creator God becomes flesh and says to John Lennon, you are wrong, John Lennon. I think something is worth dying for. You are. He came and died for those who opposed him. That's the kind of religion we're invited into. Selfless love that sacrifices our very life for our enemies, for those on the outside, to seek them with love, with radical love. That's not the kind of religion that leads us to puff up our chests and take pride that we're better than everyone else. We're no better than anyone else. Paul, the chief of sinners, that's us. We're asleep, right? But we can strive to trust Jesus and his merits and invite others to do the same. So as long as you draw breath, that's the invitation. The warning is there comes a time when the door is shut. And that's a hard warning. That's a hard warning for us. But that is the teaching of Jesus. Now is the time of grace. Now is the time to respond. Now is the time to put your trust in me. And there comes a time where that offer is closed. And he says, there will be those left on the outside sad. So respond today while you draw breath to this invitation to Jesus to the narrow way, to trust him fully, completely as the way, the truth, and the life. And since you've done that, in a moment, you're going to be invited in to the feast. You're going to come in and feast on his love. Father, I pray for those of us in our lives, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, some of us maybe, who haven't opened our hearts fully, to you as our Savior, as the one who who does long to lead us into this great feast and to love us and to teach us how to walk into an ever more flourishing and complete life. Help us to say yes to you and invite others around us, those we love, to do the same. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.